the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our third hour. It is a delight to do so with an old friend, not just of mine, but to the country, uh, Andrew C. McCarthy. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and a contributing editor at National Review, former federal prosecutor. Wrote a bunch of columns I wanted to get him on to talk about. Andy, welcome back. How are you, sir? Best, my friend, it's always great to talk to you, and Happy New Year to you and your listeners. You too, brother, you too. I, I saw you tweeting a little bit uh, on the press conference uh, that our president had. I, I didn't know if there, if you needed one more outlet to express your, uh, what would you call it, fascination with what took place for well, some guess, 90 minutes if, there? If I, if I hadn't had Twitter, I would have had to... Listen more. I I just got to tell you one thing before I get into the reason I really we really called you. But, you know, there there clearly was a series of statements by the president with regard to Russia and Ukraine that must have had the national security apparatus hair on fire. And I was going to the White House website to uh, to get the transcript of the press conference, uh, which takes time. I don't blame them for not having it up yet. But there is the very top thing, a statement on Russia and Ukraine by Jen Psaki already preemptively, I suppose, clarifying or helping or saying the kinds of things everyone in the world, at least everyone in the free world, would have risked the president said kind of government by preemption or government by press secretary here, huh? Oh, boy. And, and you know, the amazing thing was he had a friendly room yeah. where a couple of the journalists yeah. try to throw him a life. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Or, Three or four times. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and he just kept, uh, not to mix my metaphors here, but he just kept digging in deeper. He wouldn't, uh, uh, I, I mean, it's, it, to me, it was just mind-boggling for him to have, to have said that, uh, you know, basically Russia's, free to do a little bit of an invasion yeah um but and that and <laughs> we're calling it most we're call, because, you know what we're calling it here we're calling it mostly peaceful incursions yes mostly, mostly peaceful, peaceful 95 percent <laughs> yes, exactly. um, i should have whispered that i guess but, um, <laughs> yeah, i just and and you know, just to put a, a a point on it, he basically said that uh, you know this is because this is the consensus of NATO. Yeah. In other words, we have to only act on what we could agree on. Yeah. And what we've basically agreed is that if the Russians want to take a little piece of Ukraine, yeah. when I can get yeah, if they do anything it. more, we'll be in a vigorous debate. Is what he said. That's what he said. Yeah, it could be a it could be a, a strong letter to follow. Yeah, sure. strong letter to follow. All right. Well, let's use a word. Yeah, let, let's use a word you did use, muff, uh, in your column about the FBI situation from that hostage, the hostage taking in Texas over uh, on Saturday at the Texas synagogue. The FBI stops then muffs jihadist hostage taking. Tell me, uh, tell me, tell me what you saw there with the FBI. Why they muffed it, and why, why, why was this so hard? Why, why was this such a complicated thing to to say what what was pretty plain before most people's eyes? I would think. Yeah, I think that the the that 
last part is the easy answer because it's the same answer we've been talking about yeah. for you know twenty twenty or thirty years, yeah. right? Which yeah. is they are so beholden to and indulgent of Islamist organizations who unfortunately they've empowered as if those organizations, many of which are tied to the Muslim Brotherhood, actually spoke for rank and file Muslims in America, which they don't. Mm -hmm. uh, but the FBI is so conscious, I'd say hyper-conscious, of not saying anything that might be offensive to them and not saying anything that might be uh, distorted into a claim that, you know, all Muslims are anti-Semitic, that they screw up the messaging. So what the, the situation that we had on uh, Saturday night, at least as we understood it, was that the FBI had thwarted what could otherwise have been a terrible attack. Now, you know, th there's questions about that now as well. But um, And what the special agent in charge of the Dallas field office said was that um, the... The attacker, this guy Akram, mm -hmm. uh, who's clear jihadist, um, that he did not have a design, that the, 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 it was not part of his plan to be a threat to the Jewish community. Right. Um, he had a singular objective. Yes. And it was, it was on its face preposterous. I mean, the guy was 1,600 miles from the place where he landed, and of all places in America that he could have taken hostages, he decided to do it in a synagogue, mm -hmm. which is is perfectly consistent with jihadist ideology as we know it, mm -hmm. uh, which is virulently anti-Semitic. Now, it's fair enough to say, and I think what I try to explain to people is I think, you know, what, what this guy in his tin-eared way was trying to convey was that the guy's main objective was to extort the government into freeing this other jihadist, Afia Siddiqui, um, you know, she was she's being held on her 86-year terrorism sentence at a uh, at a federal penitentiary that's only 20 miles or so from where the synagogue was. So that was a synagogue was strategically chosen because it was close to where she was being held, but mm -hmm. it was still a synagogue. I yeah. mean, he obviously uh, tried to take Jewish people as hostages. So to say. That it, you know, to try to imply that you know anti-Semitism and a threat on the Jewish community didn't have anything to do with it, but I think what he was trying to say was that the FBI was not aware, because of this incident, of any ongoing broad-based uh, plot on mosques. I'm sorry, on on synagogues throughout the United States. By the so, way, by saying mosques, yeah. I, th that's perfectly fine. Uh, if, you are, if you are in the federal government, they tend to do that an awful lot. They tend to do this all under the rubric at some of the DNI and some of the DOJ stuff I've seen. They tend to conflate anti-Semitism um, and anti-Semitism an awful lot by not talking about anti-Semitism, but rather talking about communities of faith. It's a very odd thing the way they do that. Well, yeah, I think um, that whole movement has always been designed. It, it, it's yet another iteration of an overarching project right. to not look at what the tenets of radical Islam right. are. Right, you know? right, right, right. By the way, and you wrote a column on this. Let's do it for the listeners while I have you. You wrote a follow-up. Why the hell was Akram allowed to enter the U.S. in the first place? 
Yeah, so now, Seth, now you hit on the thing that I think is the thing that gets, maybe this is like a, a, there could be a pattern that we're on. Okay. Okay. But the the thing that gets the least attention is the thing that's the most important. Right. 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 There's nothing new about the FBI screwing up the messaging on radical Islam. And, you know, whatever happened in the mosque, uh, that needs the mosque. I, I get it again. Whatever happened in the synagogue, that obviously needs to be looked into closely because now we seem to learn that the hostages were out before the FBI guys were in. So there's questions about how the jihadist was killed and why he was killed and, and uh, all that stuff. That's all got to be sorted out. And there should be an investigation. We should get answers on that. But the most important thing here is our security. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, that uh, is obviously uh, transcends any concerns about this particular jihadist. So we have a situation where um, you can be excluded from the United States, even if you're from a country like the, like Great Britain, where we have uh, a, a, a waiver agreement with respect to visas. You're not, you don't qualify for a visa waiver if you have a criminal record. Right. So you have to go into the, the regular visa pile. And in the regular visa pile, under American law, uh, statutory law, you are excludable if you have a criminal record, if you have a history of mental illness, or if you've been, uh, if you've endorsed uh, terrorist activity. So any one of those reasons would be good enough to keep someone out. He hits all three. Uh, and you have to ask, how is it that we didn't know that? Mm-hmm. You know, if he had to apply for a visa, how did that not come to somebody's attention? So obviously there's an intelligence-sharing issue with the Brits, which is which is troubling because the Brits and the United States are supposed to have the model counterintelligence, counterterrorism, cooperation arrangement in among all countries in the world. And yet this one slipped through the cracks. And then the other thing I'm more concerned about is when Trump first came in, and this was a big part of the 2016 campaign, he wanted to ratchet up monitoring and the vetting of aliens who were coming to the United States from places that were hotbeds of jihadist ideology. Mm -hmm. And there was a big to-do about how do we do that consistent with the First Amendment? How do we sort of brand this thing as a as a insightful political ideology rather than a religion. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of argument about that. The first thing Biden did when he came in was countermand Trump's executive order on that score. And, you know, any one of us who's been following uh, what goes on in Washington for low all these years knows that the, the ethos of an administration is set from the top. And if the president is basically saying we're not prioritizing the vetting of aliens who are coming from places where harm is meant to Americans, that that's not a priority for us anymore. And then you see something like this happen. You have to say, you know, this is probably not a one off. This is the way they're doing it these days. It's probably a little better than the word cute, but we're probably both used to seeing uh, themes and writings about um, if the Department of Justice were less concerned about terrorists being moms at school board meetings, maybe they'd be a little more effective in real terrorism. But it does raise the question, 
of how political DOJ or FBI has become. You've got a lot of experience with it. I know you've worked there. You've got a lot of friends, contacts, and advice, give a lot of advice there. Is it more political or is it just that we're learning about the typical political nature of of, 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 of things at DOJ? I think their goal, Seth, is to be a replication of the Obama-Biden administration uh-huh. where the Justice Department Eric was Holder's historically politicized. Okay. And and that looks like the model, and it certainly looks like they're following along. By the way, um, if you decide to write a piece on that point you liked, that uh, we're, we, we tend to focus on the least important things while we ignore the big ones, I've got a great quote for you from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. I'll leave you with it. Oh. Yeah, 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 you'll love it. The use of fashions in thought is to distract men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is in the least danger and fix approval on the virtue nearest the vice which we are trying to make common. The game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers whenever there's a flood. How do you like that? Mm. There you go. That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Who who needed me when you had CS? Well, you know, I mean, his calendar was full. His calendar was full. (laughs) There wasn't a football game on tonight. I thought I'd call Andy McCarthy. Plus, I'm so um, I I was just uh, delightfully I I know we're still on air, but I just got to say delightfully uh, spent some time uh, with your cousin out here recently, who's a great public servant and a dear friend. Yeah, Yeah, Andy Tobin, for those who don't know. Is that okay to out him and you that way? I hope so. If not, I I, I will fight them. (laughs) I think I've already I've already I've already ruined Andy's. (laughs) Um, Two great Andys. I have no problem with it. And I love you, Andy. And I wish you a very happy new year. Thank you for everything. And uh, we'll be in touch again soon i hope thank you sir you betcha godspeed and god bless i'm seth leibson 602-508-0960 we will be right back welcome back to the seth leibson show 602-508-0960 by the way uh programming alert uh chris help me out here if i don't have this right but uh if i'm not mistaken uh, the great one, Mark Levin, is going to be hosting Donald Trump on his show tonight, uh, circa 9 o'clock. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. He actually, Levin does do his show a tiny bit earlier. Yeah. He aired a little bit on delay, so it has happened. But uh, 9 o'clock, I think they're blowing out the first break, too, just for uh, – uh, for President Trump. Oh, good. Okay, so you don't want to miss that. Dana Loesch, <laughs> she uh, said, if you want to know how the um, press conference with, at the White House with Joe Biden is going, note that he's now shouting at reporters asking him questions that are uncomfortable. Let me play this for you. This is from uh, Phil Wegman, who uh, works for Real Clear Politics, uh, and it's worth listening to. It might take about uh, a minute, uh, but listen to this. Um, you know, you talk, you campaigned and, and you ran on a return to civility. And I know that you dispute the characterization that you called folks who would oppose those voting bills um, as being Bull Connor or George Wallace. But you said that they would be sort of in the, the same camp. No, um, I didn't say that. Look what I said. Go back and read what I said and tell me if you think I called anyone who voted on the side of the position taken by Bull Connor, that they were Bull Connor. Hold on. I, I am going to pause this because I'm going to go right to the White House transcript, whitehouse.gov slash briefing, to what he did say. 
last week in Georgia. I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to, de- to defend our democracy. Okay? That's what he said. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? All about and all in context of supporting his election reform. So if you oppose his election reform, you're on the side of George Wallace, George Wallace, Bull Connor, and Jefferson Davis. He's denying the plain meaning of what he said and getting angry about it and getting worse as he goes on. I'll continue. And that is an interesting reading of English. You, you, I assume you got in the, in the journals because you like to write. So did you expect that that would work with Senators Manchin or, or Cinema? Um, no, here's argument? the thing. There's certain things that are so consequential. You have to speak from your heart as well as your head. I was speaking out forcefully on what I think to be at stake. That's what it is. And by the way, no one... No one forgets who was on the side of King or verse on or Bull Connor. No one not done that. The history books will note it. When I was making the case, don't think this is a freebie. You don't get to vote this way and then somehow it goes away. This will be stick with you the rest of your career and long after you're gone. In other words, if you vote against if you don't vote for the voting uh, voting in election reform, pieces of legislation that they are proposing, the federalization of our national elections. It will not go away. It's now going to be a mark of cane, a mark of cane on you. It's going to be a permanent stamp. And oh, by the way, everyone remembers who was on the side of Martin Luther King and who was on the side of Bull Connor. We'll get to that memory in just a moment. Let me just finish out the president here. And Mr. President, if... Folks. I'm more on Ukraine, please, sir. Yeah. Okay. Pandemonium. Pandemonium, denying the plain words that he did say. I'll read them again. At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? Now, on his pre- in his press conference... It was a very odd construction. He says everyone remembers who was on those sides. Do they? Does everyone remember? Because it was his effort to put the Republicans as the party of George Wallace, Bull Connor, and Jefferson Davis. That was the point of his speech. It's called historic revisionism. Historic revisionism. Who do you think Martin Luther King was marching against in the South? What party do you think were those governors, were those police chiefs? What party were they? I'll help you out. Same party as his friend, the segregationist Senator Eastland, that he bragged about doing a lot of work with. Same party as his friend Robert Byrd, who he bragged doing a lot of work with. Same party as Joe Biden. Let's be- 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Chris, thanks for, uh, thanks for producing today. We're coming to you live from our Guns Etc. studios. Um, good news to report, but, you know, not as not. You know what? I'm not going to say it's good news. Let me retract that. News to report. Uh, it looks like LAPD has arrested a suspect in the murder of the 24-year-old uh, UCLA student, Brianna Kupfer, who we were talking about yesterday a little bit with Brian Kennedy, and uh, which has dominated a lot of the news. And um, that so good that they've arrested a suspect is what I meant. It's not good news that we even have to be talking about it. But... The point I wanted to make is this. It would be a near impossibility given the numbers. But for those that think what's taking place in our big cities, um, the violent crime rate, the homicide spike, whether it be L.A. or San Francisco, whether it be uh, Chicago or Detroit, whether it be Philadelphia, New York City, or whether it be Tucson, which is on the map now, too, as having had a unprecedented spike in violent crimes, especially dealing with the homicide. If, if, if the national media could put as much attention on and just pick a city for a week, maybe, or a month— Pick a city. Take, let's start with Chicago. Start with the middle of the country if you want. If they could put the kind of attention on the homicides and the homicide victims in those cities the same way they did with Brianna Kupfer, or Kupfer in Los Angeles as they did the past 48 hours, which had – the dual purpose of awakening a slumbering country about these things and adding pressure on the mayor and DA and police department to work harder to find their assailant, to find their alleged assailant. Those were the two effects of making of Brianna a national story. If the media would do that with every victim or at least one out of every five or ten victims pick and picked at random because there may be too many. If they would do that, how did Shakespeare put it? Give to every abstraction a habitation and a name. You know, it's hard to deal with the numbers that we get from these cities. Put a name on it. Put a face on it. Talk a little bit about that person's family. Maybe interview the father or the mother, as they did with Brianna Cupford. I'm not complaining about what they did. That's good. It's good that the media highlighted this. Now highlight what's going on everywhere else. A, to awaken a slumbering nation, perhaps a slumbering DA, perhaps a slumbering mayor, perhaps a slumbering set of new prosecutorial and police standards. And let people know about it and add that pressure to them to do something about it. To do something about it. I can't tell you with any degree of certainty that this person in Brianna Kupfer's death was arrested because of the national pressure. But I suspect that the rapidity with which 
this person was arrested did have something to do with that. You look at the quotes, you look at the speeches, you look at the statements of the mayor and the DA in L.A., and it's all about wishing crime away. It's all about reimagining police. It's all about defining crime as well as deviancy down. But there's nothing like the force of the appeal to common sense. There's nothing like the force of making a media story out of a tragedy where you can give to an airy abstract number, a local habitation and a name. You bet the elected officials in these cities are embarrassed when these things happen. They should be. They should be embarrassed and shamed, but not ending there, embarrassed and shamed into action. And hopefully part of that action is not just the all-hands-on-deck effort to arrest the assailant or the alleged assailant, but perhaps to waken them from an even deeper slumber, which is them thinking their policies are good policies, because they're not. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. This is kind of interesting. You know, Joe Biden, um, in his press conference today, it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a divided position to think about what he said about Russia and how bad it was, how much uh, rope he gave Vladimir Putin to run with in his uh, in his press conference today, and in part one wants to sort of praise the three reporters. Three by my count. It might have been four, and we'll wait for the transcript. But several reporters, at least three others, who gave him a follow-up question on Russia to tidy up his answer, to allow him to clean it up, they seized on that answer, his bad answer, giving Vladimir Putin all that rope. He never did clean it up. He took those opportunities and continued to muff, muffle. Uh, his his responses. He didn't tidy it up at all. Jen Psaki had to do it by posting a statement on the White House website before even the full transcript of the press conference was posted. One wants to kind of say something about the press at least noticing that. But on the other hand, there's an analysis that probably should not be dismissed that says by focusing, by those three or four reporters focusing on Russia and his response to Russia's sites on the Ukraine, they didn't ask him questions that a lot of Americans really wanted asking. What I was talking about perhaps in the previous segment, something on the skyrocketing of violent crime or the border crisis, which isn't only about people from other countries coming here, but the things they bring, fentanyl, or fentanyl deaths now being the leading cause of death of those between ages 18 and 49 in the United States. It ain't COVID. It's illegal drugs. By the way, if we're supposed to be concerned with, well, pick your, pick your line on the plane, 
concerned with or frightened by things that could kill us. Are we a little disoriented right now with all the attention on COVID for young adults, teens, and adolescents, and the threat they face from COVID versus the threat they face from death by using illegal drugs or by using drugs illegally? If you really cared, if you really cared about the lives of your fellow citizens, if you really cared about the kids, would you be as concerned that they all be wearing masks and get vaccinated for a disease that will hardly touch them in a negative way, much less kill them, than something that really is the leading cause of their death? Wouldn't you just be about as concerned or would you not? Why are we so disoriented? Because it's easier to shame people than to actually do something that might be unpopular with your base. Who's the base? Who's the base, by the way? I don't even know that their poll thinking is right. Their polling is right. Who's the base? They're worried about offending a constituency in America concerned with minority rights, Hispanic Americans, by being too hard about issues having to do with the border. When Donald Trump received record numbers of Hispanic and percentages of Hispanic American votes and, as we learned from George Keloff here in Arizona and in California, Hispanic Americans registering Republican in new and rising numbers, it's not even that their polling is telling them to be this way. They're either looking at outmoded and outdated information about what are the concerns of all Americans or Americans even broken up by nation of origin or race or ethnicity. They're either more concerned about that or they're or they're gripped by what we call an idea fix, the power of an ideological concept that no fact truth or reason will shake them from invincible ignorance invincible ignorance it would seem to me that if you were a political advisor you would of any party have no problem advising an administration of any party that a You need to talk about the drug problem in this country. It is the number one threat, cause of death, of working age people in this country, age 18 to 49 anyway. You need to talk about it. And if you did and did something about it, if you talked about it and did something about it, you'd make a real dent in the numbers. Look at the way the trajectory has exploded has exploded by lack of attention to this issue and not just this issue, retail, this issue wholesale, which is about the border. People used to speak of the porous border. After my first trip, Chris, weren't you with me on my first trip to the border? 
after my first trip to the border, I stopped calling it porous. When was that? Five years ago? Something like that? Four years ago? Three or four years ago? I stopped calling it porous after that trip because it's not porous. It's non-existent. Porous, you assume that there are gaps. I went to places where there was no wall, no fencing, no anything. The holes were the border. Not the metal around them. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Thank you all for joining us today. Chris, thanks for filling in for Bill today. Much appreciated. Bill should be back tomorrow. Um, I usually close with something uh, from someone else, and I'll do that, but it's of a little bit of a different style. I suppose when the inmates take over the asylum, it becomes concentrated common sense that whatever they say has the effect of being conventional wisdom because it's from on high and they have taken over the asylum. They run the asylum. So when they tell us the Republicans are the party of extremists, understand what party is calling Republicans that. Please go to powerlineblog.com and read John Hinderocker's Post, are the Democrats becoming a fascist party? 15, new poll, 59%, let's call it 60. 60% of Democrats favor legislation that would confine all unvaccinated people in their homes, except in case of emergency. 48% of Democrats think the government should fine or imprison individuals who publicly question the efficacy of the existing COVID-19 vaccines on social media, television, radio, or in online or digital publications. 45% of Democrats would favor requiring unvaccinated citizens to temporarily live in designated facilities or locations, concentration camps. When people say the Democrats who voted for Joe Biden were voting for the moderate Joe Biden, not every Democrat is a lefty. Well... Between 48 and 59 percent are more than lefties. They're Maoists. I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 